calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Another spooky season is upon us. It's episode 492 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham and it's Halloween week. Love Halloween. I still get dressed up. Every year when I go take when my wife and I go take the kids out for trick or treating, got the costumes ready to go. Decided to be Poseidon this year, and everybody's gonna think it's Aquaman, but who cares? It's gonna be fun anyway. So yeah, love Halloween, and I thought this was a good week to share my interview with Amy Chu, who's the writer of Carmilla, the first vampire. It's a graphic novel from Dark Horse Comics and Burger Books, and yeah, it is a really cool, very interesting vampire story that I think you really got to dig, so I got a chance to talk to her about that. And good luck finding the book, by the way, because it's been sold out all over the place a ton, but I can't wait to dive in to that story with her. Of course, I had a bonus episode on Friday that you, maybe you missed. Go, you know, you know, wherever you get your podcasts, wherever you subscribe, go grab that because you not only hear a couple of really good comic book reviews, but you'll hear part of that interview on there as well. So if you caught that, if you caught the bonus episode and you're like, hey, where's the rest of this interview? It's coming up on this show here in a couple minutes. I'm also going to talk about Invincible, which is going to be coming back to Prime Video. So I'll give you my spoiler free review of the Invincible Season 2 premiere and also going to be talking about the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror episode for this year as well. I'll give you an early review of that. That's going to be coming up this coming Sunday. But up next, yeah, let's talk to Amy Chu, the writer of Carmilla, the first vampire. I'll do that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Arvind Ethan David, executive producer of Dirt Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Comic-Con 2023, you know where I'm at right now? I'm at the cozy setting of the Dark Horse booth in the media room here, which is, I mean, it's a pretty sweet spread. Just going to tell you right now, right now, set the tone for you, but you know what I've got sitting in front of me? I've got Carmilla the First Vampire graphic novel. It started out at Comixology, now at Dark Horse and Burger Books. And let me tell you, the writer, a name you should recognize, Amy Chu. Amy, how you doing today? I'm great. How are you? Doing so, so well. And I re-familiarized myself with the story recently, Amy, because I read it you know, back in 2022 when it first came out. And when I heard you were going to be here, I was like, I need to read that again and make sure. I'm so glad I did. So anybody that might not be familiar with it, though, tell them a little bit about Carmela. Oh, so Carmela is a retelling of the original 
I guess what we call public domain now, Carmilla, who preceded Dracula by 26 years. So this is a very old story, female vampire, obviously, who, um, let's say, uh, does uh, the vampire thing with a, let's just say she's the first female vampire, but also very much a queer vampire. Talk about setting this in New York a little bit. Part of me feels like this is like the perfect setting to like hide in plain sight sort of I thing. See, so yes. did it feel like, was yes. that one of the reasons you chose yes, New York? Yeah, so literally like I was thinking, first of all, I'm like, wow, this is such an interesting story. And if you read the original, which you should, because it's a good read, even though it's like what, like, you know, 18, you know, 19th century. It's a lot, it's, it's a lot. A, it's a lot, but it's a good tell until the end where you're like, really? That's how you're gonna end it? So let's just say, um, as, as vampires do, if I, if I were Carmilla, what would I be doing? I would not be hanging around Europe, who's basically hostile to my presence, right? Around, let's say, the turn of the 19th century, 20th century, the beginning of the 20th century. If I were Carmilla, I, I would go to, you know, the U.S., where things are happening, right? Industrial Revolution and everything. And where would I go? I would go to New York. So this is really a story of her basically uprooting, as one does, right? Especially if you have money. If you're old... European money vampire, this is what I would do. Literally, I would go to New York. And so that's how the story sort of started taking on that of like, what, what would she do? And as one does, right, where would she feed and hunt, etc. So that's really the genesis of this story. And I love that, you know, people hear, okay, Carmela, vampire story, and you go in with a certain set of expectations, but I feel like it's not at all your typical vampire story you know you get the seduction vibes you get corruption vibes so were you kind of trying to go for the not quite traditional vampire yeah, story 100 that I, I didn't really want it to be just all about vampires and like that the, the very it's really thematic it's it's set in new york city in the 90s mid 90s so there's a lot of things i want to play with the, the, the main protagonist is a social worker who understands that, who figures out that there's a pattern of mysterious deaths going on. And that's really one I want, because that's really in real life. People forget that there are homeless teens out there, LGBTQ, basically, who disappear and nobody cares. And so I was taking something that was real world and trying to have, of course, there's a supernatural theme here, but that's really not necessarily the point of the story. So you're absolutely right. I wasn't trying to do, you know, here's, here's a vampire world and here's the lore and here's the, right? Um, there are plenty of other uh, things you can read that will satiate that. This is really about hopefully a little bit of more psychological horror and, and, and honestly it's also set in a time of a grittier New York. Let's not forget this is the Burger Books imprint and Karen Burger who founded Vertigo. Let's just say this is the most Vertigo thing I've ever written. Yes it is. And I, I like to think that this is the most Vertigo thing that the Burger Books has put out so far. No doubt about that. You also get to add some really cool cultural aspects into this as well. I think it's really neat because you said it during Lunar New Year. Your Athena is an, is an Asian American woman. So talk about being able to mix in those cultural aspects as well. Sure. Actually, that wasn't in the original pitch, but it was very much, again, New York City. And if, if some of you out there remember this, right? In the mid-90s, things are, things are a little definitely grittier. Not as bad as the 70s, right? But Chinatown was also a little bit different at that time, and it just seemed like a good place to sit. And then I am Chinese American myself, so some of that started coming out. I'm like, you know, let me let me start weaving in some of that lore as well. 
So there's a little bit of uh, uh, Chinese American history in there, um, but because also the pattern of death is around Chinatown. So there is a New York City Chinatown story in there. And there is also the story of gentrification, which happens in a lot of the neighborhoods, but particularly in Chinatown. So I wanted to get that, you know, the best stories I think have to have multiple layers, and that was very important for me to get it in there. I love that you bring family into this too. This is not, obviously not the first story versus you brought the family aspect into. So talk about the relationship between Athena and her grandpa for, for a minute because I just loved that dynamic between the two of them. Um, yeah, you're right. I, I had to think about it. It's like, yeah, I guess I do that a lot. What I like, and I, I teach also, I teach writing too at the Kubert School and SVA. And one of the things I like to try to get people to understand is a lot of the best stories is contrast between characters. And it's really, not that you can't do it, but to have, let's say, a team book where everyone's kind of similar is not, you know, that's not the best way to tell a story. You want conflict, you want, and I, I love to do intergenerational, and especially when you're talking about Chinese America, or a lot of immigrant uh, families in general, the intergenerational stories are important. And let's not forget, we're talking about a vampire lore. The, the other thing I want to talk about, which is why it's not traditional, because when we talk traditional, it's a little bit coded of, okay, Dracula, right? And, yeah, of and, course. And Carmela is European vampires. When we, If you think about it worldwide, globally, there are many, many different kinds of vampires. Every culture has some form of vampire or demon. And so my point of talking about when we say American vampire, American vampire is not just a bunch of European vampires coming over here. If you're really talking about immigration, and this is Carm Carmilla came over here, but you have to think that there are Asian American vampires, Haitian vampires, etc. So that was just the tip of the iceberg of what I was trying to explore with this. And one of the other great things about this book, and there are many of them, but Sue Lee's art is just oh off God. the chain, incredible. Thank the character designs are Thank on point. Talk about that partnership between the two two of you all a little bit. Well, there's a little bit in here, and I'm, 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 I, I hope and I'm sure I'm talking to some people who are just aspiring or trying to break into comics or things, right? There's a little bit of a hustle involved that you got to really sort of say what, what you want to do and who you want to work with. And Sue, uh, she actually didn't remember this. I think this was when I was in around New York and we had just done a very small show and I was just starting to teach maybe at the Kubert School and she was at the she was at the dinner and, and at one point she just kind of turned around and introduced herself and she said I would really love it if we could work together just like that right and I was like whoa okay it's not like I'm all that but right but I remember that sometimes you have to ask you can't just you you can't wait for people to come to you right and so doesn't always work this way and this is true for me as well obviously I'm out there saying I would love to work for Dark Horse I would love to work with Karen Berger but people don't just come up and say hey right we have this opportunity things take a long time to percolate and we also change in terms of our styles and what, what we work on basically so fast forward when I had in fact this was at San Diego Comic-Con and I was having lunch with Karen and Karen's like what you got kind of thing and like vampires and like well who do you want to work with and like you know you got to work through whose style is appropriate for this kind of story and I was like you know it would be interesting obviously I don't have full say over these things but you know let me let me show Karen Sue's work right because what we're looking for the art style has to match the tone of the book and oh, there are plenty of artists who are like oh I can draw everything but 
still, it, just like I can write anything, I still have a particular voice. And so there's a little bit of a gamble in terms of, right, how is this going to all work out? But that's the nature of the business, that it's a collaboration. And Sue just knocked it out of the park, right? She's done other things before. I'm talking like, you know, hey, Sue, I'm glad it worked out, right? It just worked out really wonderfully. But it doesn't always work because there's a lot of people out there, a lot of writers, a lot of artists, and we kind of have to know that this is the kind of thing you want to do and that you do want to work. I don't presume everyone wants to work with me for one thing, right? It's, Why not, Amy? <laughs> I'm actually really easy to work with, I'm just saying. You know, I'm not like... A, You're delightful, come on. Thank you. I try to be, right? Uh, so that's really how it happened. Talk about the journey for this book a little bit, though, because correct me if I'm wrong, this started out digital. No, is that right? well, no, no, it didn't start out digital. It didn't start out digital. It is. Uh, it started out. The, the thing that threw a, it was supposed to be a mini, you know, well, the, the regular single issues, but then COVID came. That's along. what. It, okay, yeah, That's there we go. That's what happened. Is it, I don't believe there was ever like let's do digital first because I don't know the thinking behind that per se, but it was more like maybe we should just go straight to trade because single issues, it, you know, is having a hard time, and what if we just. Because I, I, and if you read it, it's four chapters, it really. Oh, it's de yeah, it definitely yeah, is, yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's how I like to write, to be honest. You know, let's just do it like that. So you can think about it. Certainly, you can read it as if it came out single issues, because that's that's how I tend to write. But it is really the the thing is, and I, I was a little nervous too, because I'm like, you know, you know, going straight to trade, there's no test. If you go to floppy for a single issues, at least you have an idea. How do people react to it? So there's a little bit of like, whoa, going straight to trip. I hope it, I hope people like it. So this is the only spoiler we're going to talk about here. So I'm going to give the spoiler warning because I really wanted to get your opinion on this. We don't actually get that reveal, that vampire reveal, until toward the end of the yeah. book, which I thought was actually really smart. Talk about that transformation a little bit for Violet. At towards the end of that book and how that all kind of came to pass and what the what went into the decision to kind of wait until the end there. Well, it was really, so, look, Carmilla, if you know anything about vampires, you already know there's vampires involved. So to me, it's like not even a, that's what you're expecting. And so I think if you're going to pick up the book, you're going to wait to see what's going to happen. And I am a big fan of, from the very start, I love, I love Twilight Zone. I love the twist endings. I love... Uh, o. Henry, also same formula, is a story but with, you know, a twist at the end. And that, that's generally how I like to write a lot of things to the degree that I'm allowed to do that. So doing that, though, requires a lot of work. I did the same thing with um, Poison Ivy, Cycle of Life and Death. It's Poison Ivy, Cycle of Life and Death is a straight-up murder mystery. you got to have a murder reveal, right? This is the same thing. It is a murder mystery with a reveal, and whether or not you pick up on it, if you pick up on it early, awesome. If you don't, right, you want to see how it plays out, but you don't really know, right? I, I try to throw in a bunch of little, little red herrings and hooks and whatever. It's got to be a good story no matter what. So that, that's really the thinking more than anything else is... Hopefully I threw enough clues in there and you're in or not. If you're surprised, awesome. But really, I didn't want to make Carmilla, this straight up, like Carmilla basically having her own, you know, thing. And I think, just as I, I have to say, I do the same thing with Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman, when I do Wonder Woman, you kind of know who she is already. But to me, the interesting things to explore are the characters around Wonder Woman or the characters, right? So same thing, this is really about who is Carmilla. What it is, and 
hopefully people find that a little bit more spooky in a way that you have to discover who she is now. And the other thinking also, honestly, is that there are still a lot of people who don't even know who Carmilla is. Very true. So I didn't really want to say, okay, as I teach a lot of students, I'm like, let's get to it. Let's get to it. First couple of pages, let's introduce everybody. This is deliberately like, let's wait and like start understanding who is she really, right? Before I let you go, Amy, I get to the end of this thing, right? And I think Athena's story doesn't feel over. So could there be plans for me to maybe do a second chapter? Well, I don't think I'm allowed to say anything about this quite yet, but let's just put it this way. The book is sold out everywhere. In fact, even at the signing, there's, they, they gave me the last one. It's sold out. I just tried to order it from Penguin Random House and it's back ordered. So, right... There's My a, eyebrows are going up for those who can't see. There is a lot of room to explore, and I did sort of deliberately. When, when I pitched it, Karen just said, let's just do one book. And I'm like, well, let's just write it so that if it goes further, it goes further. So <laughs> Karen said, let's do one book, and Amy said, well, <laughs> let's just see how it goes. Well, no, every, every story and everything I write, it's like... You know, people watch TV. It's like you never just kill off everybody. This is true. This is true. Right? Although I didn't kill off a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> that there's room to explore, especially lore, because the other thing, I don't know if people realize, it's like, I'm not like Jared. I'm not allowed to just write whatever I want for an infinite, you know, there's... You're given a page count, and there's only so much I can fit in that page count. So hopefully people feel like there is a second story that may be something I'm working on, maybe right now at this show. <laughs> so. And so that means you need to get Carmela the First Vampire, if you can, from Dark Horse and Burger Books, because we want to support this getting a second chapter for sure. Amy Chu, thank you so much for your time thank today. You. I appreciate it. This was lovely. Thank you so much. Okay, so I tried to get her to tell me that there was going to be more to this story, but, you know, Amy was a little bit coy there. She wasn't about to re reveal everything that's going to be coming up for this, but I kind of feel like we're going to get more Carmela, and when you read this book and you understand how interesting of a story this really, really is, you know, I went in with one set of expectations and came out completely floored with what they were able to do with the story, what, what, what Amy crafted here. And the way it was modernized, but also made it completely make sense. And the cup, and there were a couple of big left turns in this story that were really, really fun to be a part of. So if you can find it somewhere, make sure you're reading Carmilla, the first vampire from Dark Horse Comics and Burger Books. And fingers crossed, we get more of this thing. I haven't seen any announcements yet. Hopefully, one's going to be coming soon that we're going to be getting more Carmilla. But super, super excited for what could be possible for the story going forward and i mean if even if this is a one-off it's a damn good one and perfect for the halloween season that we're in right now so yeah a really really good story carmela the first vampire make sure you get in your hands on yours if you're able thanks to amy chu for joining me at comic-con and chatting about carmela the, the first vampire up next how about we talk about Invincible? It's almost back on Prime Video. Got an early chance to see the season two premiere, and I'll talk about it next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
This week, the Down and Nerdy Podcast is brought to you by Claritin D. And tis the season to breathe pollen. Yeah, I've been spending a lot more time outside with the kids recently. And yeah, I can tell those allergies are definitely acting up. I feel stuffy. I feel sluggish. The eyes are starting to water a little bit more. That's why I'm turning to Claritin D. Look, it's definitely helped me relieve my symptoms. It seems to work really, really fast for me as well. It's designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongestion in your nose so you can breathe better. And hey, I'm noticing a lot of that right now. As a matter of fact, I'm looking forward to be able to enjoy much more outdoor time this spring and summer. A lot of that has to do with Claritin D. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. This is Carlos Magno, and you're listening to the Down and the Nerdy Podcast. Will a hero follow in his father's footsteps? Season 2 of Invincible premieres this Friday, November the 3rd, on Prime Video, part two of season two. That is when it hits. I wanted to give you a spoiler-free review of what I got a chance to see a little bit early. And right away, we see, and a lot of what you see in the trailer is kind of what we see right away. You sort of see the aftermath of what happens after the showdown between Mark and his dad, between Invincible and Omni-Man, where he lays it out, tells him where he's really from, why he's really on Earth, what he's really doing. And it's the whole... You know, Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker thing, but with more bloods <laughs> in, a, in a certain way. And we see the, we, we sort of get to see the aftermath of what happens right after Omni Man leaves Mark in that battered state. But in the very beginning of the episode, we get a little bit of a different tone. Now, some of this is not going to be, actually, none of this is going to be spoilers. But what you see in the trailer is yes, there's multiple dimensions that are now at play here. And you see a new villain who is kind of a part of that whole multi-dimensional storyline, which makes a huge impact on what you see in the trailer. You just don't know it yet because you haven't actually watched the episodes. But it, everything will be explained for you right away, actually. You, you'll get to see something really, really quickly and kind of get an idea of where the season's going to go. But this is a the very beginning of this season, a lot of it is about Mark, what he wants to do, who he wants to be, what he wants to do going forward. And it's and just his family as well, because you have to remember what happened with Debbie as well, his mom, where she's basically just thrown away like trash when Omni-Man says that she was more of like a pet, which that, that sucks. So you get to see 
her sort of dealing with her side of things as well. And we get to see, you know, Mark and Amber's relationship. Where is that going? And, you know, what does Mark's future really look like? Is it is it as a superhero? Is it focusing on his education? Things like that. We get to see a lot of these different things come at play here. And we also get to see something about his relationship with Cecil as well, which you can imagine after what happened in season one, what that's like and where Cecil's head is at as well. And you get an early kind of idea of what that is. And you see a lot of the team that's back. You get to see Rexplode. You get to see Robot. You get to see Duplicate. Adam Eve is going to be a part of things as well. Monster Girl. So yeah, you get to see all of the principal players that you knew and loved from the first season, but a little bit different. And there's a certain character that might have a little bit of trust issues. And that will definitely be playing a role, especially in the early part of this season. So what you do is you get to have a little bit of a different story and we get more of a focus on Mark this time than we kind of did last season because last season I feel like was a lot about Mark and his dad. Now we get to see more of just Mark and where his story is going to go and a new villain that he has to deal with and there's a reason why he has to deal with this particular villain, not just, you know, to stop the person because they're a villain. That's pretty obvious. There's more to it than that and you get to see why in very, very early on in the episode. And you get to see some familiar villains that I think you remember from season one as well. It's funny how they sort of, they didn't reuse anything. I don't, I don't want to say it like that, but, but what you saw right away in the first episode of the first season, you also get in the first episode of the second season, you get to see a familiar villain or villains. You also get to see there's the shock and awe factor is back too. It's like, remember in the first episode when you get to see Omni-Man completely destroy everyone in that scene? Well, you get something just as shocking, but in a different way in this second episode, in this, in the first episode of this second season. So that's the one thing that this show has done the best, I think, is that it grabs you right away. It doesn't reveal everything, but it sure as hell doesn't wait to make a huge impact right away and it and it makes you care about these characters like mark is a character that i'm fully invested in at this point and you know in him and amber i want to see i want to see them make it i want to see that everything go well for them but i also kind i'm very interested in in cecil's mindset like i said we get a little bit of a of a peek into that as well because you know cecil's got all you know a lot of responsibility in front of him as well you think that you know the world's on the the way the world is on the shoulders of mark you know, Cecil, it's, it's, there's a lot of sneaky pressure on him as well. And he's got some very, very important decisions to make as you head into the second season. And you all you needed to do was watch the first season to know that. But now just think about, you know, how much of an impact that's going to make on this season based just on last season without even having to watch an episode of this thing. We also get to see another a new hero introduced into the mix. So that should make things pretty interesting but yeah this season you can just tell from the early going that this is going to be a major season of this show the character designs are just as good the one thing I love about this show too is it doesn't try too hard it's not afraid to stick to its story know that it has a good story know that it has good characters and good actors that are involved as well just Stephen Yen as and Stephen Yun excuse me as Mark Grayson is was perfect from the start and only gets better 
in this season, quite frankly, Jillian Jacobs back as Adam Eve, and you know just Zachary Quinto as Robot. Everybody was cast so well, and it just it feels like the show hasn't been gone for as long as it has. You know, I, I know it feels like forever since we've had new episodes of Invincible, and now that it's back, it not only was it totally worth the wait, but at the same time, it feels like it never left. You just slip right in to this season, and it's just such a smooth transition into season number two. So you get just enough new, but you also get just enough of the, the stuff that you loved from the first season as well. So it's a really good balance. And I think that, you know, separating things a little bit, especially in the early going, was really smart. But they also always focus on the bigger picture because you know there's always going to be that Omni-Man and Invincible story lingering in the background and you saw in the trailers like am, am I, I want to be like my dad is that what's actually going to happen imagine what kind of pressure that's like as well especially once you find out who your dad really is so season two of invincible is something that i know you've been dying to see and you are not going to be disappointed when you do i could tell you that right now that's going to do it for my spoiler free review of season two part one anyway of invincible up next oh since it's the halloween season how can I not talk about the new episode of The Simpsons, Treehouse of Horror? I'll give you my spoiler-free review of that one as well next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Martin Garrow, creator and executive producer of Blindspot, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It's a Halloween tradition over 30-plus years old. The Simpsons, Treehouse of Horror, number 34. Can you believe it? going to be this Sunday, November the 5th, on Fox. I know, I wish it was a little bit closer to Halloween Day. I wish they'd have done it this past weekend, but you know, scheduling and all that stuff sometimes just doesn't work out. So, we got to do it this Sunday, so make sure you're staying in the Halloween spirit. Until then, going to give you my spoiler-free review of this thing, and I love the fact that we get classic Simpsons stuff, but they also update it, as they often do. There's a really funny skit about NFTs on here. I say skit. It's, it's part of the episode. That's not really the right way to say it, but one of the episodes has to do with NFTs, but then you've also got like this crime noir vibe that that is for one of them as well. And then I got really, so I got some vibes from Seven as well, the movie with Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman. Yeah, that I got a little winks and nods there. And there's also winks and nods to. I felt like I I felt a little bit of Bullet Train, the other the, the other Brad Pitt movie. For some reason, there was a real Brad Pitt vibe in this thing for me. But there there were all three of the. I think there was three, if I'm remembering correctly. All three of the of the parts of the episode were really fun for me, actually. I don't know if I had a favorite necessarily, although there was one that has a callback to a classic Simpsons episode. And yes, you'll know exactly what episode it is when it pops up. Actually, part of the episode is in this episode. It's like at the very beginning, and it sets everything up for the, for the Treehouse of Horror episode to come. And it and it makes sense and everything ties in and it's really really neat. So I think that probably is my favorite, only because it deals with one of my favorite Simpsons characters that's not in the main cast and a voice that I you know I don't hear often enough on The Simpsons. But if you use something too much, you wear it out, right? And The Simpsons has also done a very good job with that. They know when to use which talent and how often. They don't want to overdo it too much so the the nft one was really fun because you know nfts drive me crazy and i've i don't talk about them on the show for a reason 
of The Simpsons, bravo to you for exactly what you did with NFTs. And I think that it describes it. I think it describes it quite well. You know, hey, no shade on you if you like NFTs or if you're somebody that really believes in that. I don't. And it doesn't seem like the people at The Simpsons do either. But (laughs) you'll find that out when you see the episode. The last one's really neat as well because it kind of does something where it's like a what if. That's that's the best way that I can describe it. It's a what if kind of episode, but there's a lot more to it than that. They put a lot more thought into it because obviously, you know, the writers of The Simpsons and everybody that's been involved in the show over the years, they know how to bring creativity into things after 30 plus years on the air and still doing stuff that hasn't been done before. And who knows what predictions they're going to get right at this point in the future. I'm actually a little bit scared after watching this episode. Hopefully none of these predictions end up being right but there was a classic Simpsons character that everybody loves I think that is a major part of the last part of the Treehouse of Horror episode and it just puts a neat little spin on things so if you ever wondered oh I wonder what this character would be like if this happened sort of thing yeah you're gonna be able to see that in this upcoming part of this episode but I mean again it's just not Halloween at this point whether the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror and it just blows my mind that we've had 34 of these and that next year it's going to be the 35th. I know there's been that many seasons of The Simpsons. I get it. I can do the math. But at the same time, it just it doesn't feel real until I saw the Roman numerals. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And they're still doing the same old stuff. They're still giving, you know, scary versions of the cast and crew and creators names and stuff like that in the credits and everything you love about The Simpsons Treehouse of Horror is a part of this thing. I think it's one of the better ones in the last few years, and the last couple at least have been pretty good. So that's saying something. That's saying a lot. So really enjoyed this year's Simpsons Treehouse of Horror number 34, which, again, I still can't wrap my head around. And bravo to everybody at The Simpsons for keeping it fresh, keeping it funny. It's not, like, super scary, but at the same time, it's, it's Simpsons here. That's kind of the way I like to put it. Instead, it's more Simpsons scary than anything else. That's going to do it for my spoiler-free review of The Simpsons Treehouse of Horror 34. Up next, got some fun nerd news to get into. Let's do it. I'm James Witham. This is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is writer and artist Gabriel Rodriguez, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to 2025 we go. It's time for nerd news. And first of all, before I get to this whole... Snow White story. I wanted to say that apparently we are maybe close to a deal between the studios and SAG after to end this strike. Has the strike ended by the time I've recorded this? Maybe. If it has, then I will talk about it in the next edition of the podcast. But again, when you record the stuff in advance, you never know when deals are going to get made just because stuff happens over the weekend. You know, you just you just never know. So again, if the deal is made, yes, I will talk about it, and it will be on next week's show. So I'm just going to go ahead and throw that out there right now. While I say that it looks like the Snow White live action movie with Rachel Zegler is going to be on the move. Of course, it was supposed to come out in March of 2024. Now it's moved to March of 2025, March 21st, to be exact. That is Disney's Snow White. But what we did get is a look at Rachel Zegler as Snow White, and we got a look at the Seven Dwarves. Now, I will say that the, and I can't use the term controversy in air quotes enough here, 
I'm just going to throw that out there right now. It, the, the controversy was, you know, oh, well, what are the dwarves going to look like? And people were upset about that. And, of course, people were upset about Rachel Zegler's Snow White for stupid reasons. And let's just let's just not talk about that. But what I will say is that our first look at the dwarves, I think, was actually more uh, more telling than the first look at Snow White. Because, let's face it, the, if you look at the look of Snow White, costuming, perfect. Rachel Zegler actually, you know, has a really good Snow White look in this in this in this photo. She she actually looks like the character, so that that's pretty spot on. And if you do the costuming right, that is that's half the battle won right there. So that's not what I was waiting for. I was waiting for what the Seven Dwarves were going to look like. And of course, Rachel's Rachel Zegler, not a tall woman. Let's just put that out there right now. So the dwarves. I think, you know, the dwarves look like they're about the right size, quite frankly, and they freaking look like dwarves, like you would kind of expect. So, and now, do they look exactly like their animated counterparts? No. And there's a little bit of garden gnomish going on here, if you're if you're looking at, you know, what these dwarves actually look like. But they, to me, the dwarves look like they should look, if you're doing Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. I actually think that they did a decent job with that, and that's kind of the thing that I was, I was worried about is that you know you, you want to actually kind of make them look as close to the animation as possible. We knew there was going to be some effects to that, and we'll and t- and until you get a trailer, you don't really know. A first look photo tells you only but so much, but look wise and is and is like size wise, I think they I think they did the job. I think that they've done it right so far. So you check the first box. At least, if if that's what I'm going with, this is the to me, the first box that that is checked. So 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 far so good. I'm still going to be on the record saying that this movie doesn't need to be made at all. <laughs> that doesn't mean I won't say I won't see it. But at the same time, like we've already made Snow White movies enough, we didn't need any more. I don't know why we're doing this. So I hope it's good. You know, maybe it will be. I just don't think that this is something that was necessary, and I think this is, again, Disney going to the same well one too many times. And will it bite them? I don't know. It's, you know, We've actually seen a lot of animated projects bite them. As a matter of fact, Elio, which is the next Pixar movie that was going to be coming out, well, that's now in 2025 as well. That was going to come out on March 1st of this, this upcoming year, now June 13th of 2025. Now, you move it to a, you know, closer to the summer, so they, they might have a little bit of confidence in it in that regard, but at the same time, like, I don't know. They, it's kind of like they've been giving Pixar the short end of the stick anyway. So, and, and this whole thing of, oh, well, Disney Plus hurt the whole, hurt Elemental because people were just going to wait to watch it on Disney Plus because of how, you know, they threw movies on there during the pandemic, so people were just going to wait. Maybe. You know, maybe that did bite them a little bit. I don't think so. Elemental, you heard my review of it a few weeks ago. Elemental was a good movie. But at the same time, people are going to go to the movies to see something if they really want to see it. I think we've, we've seen many, many examples of that. And it's Disney's saying stuff like this to me just is their unwillingness to admit their poor marketing strategies, which is what they've had. They've had very, very poor marketing strategies recently, especially... When it comes to Pixar films, and Elemental was probably one of the best Pixar films in a long, long time as well. So, look, 
you can blame whatever you want on that. And you can, and I'm sure that they'll find a way to make excuses if Snow White doesn't see, succeed or Elio doesn't succeed. But guess what? They're going to keep making these things, and we're going to keep either loving them or criticizing them one way or the other. So, yeah, that's just how it's going to go. But, again, Snow White, we'll see. Okay, but the, the, the whole complaining for ridiculous reasons, that I, I really wish that would stop. And, and some people are just never going to be satisfied with this movie regardless. Don't go see it. But the review bombing's going to come, and the stupid stuff that always happens is going to come, so we're just going to have to wait and see on that. Daredevil, the Born Again, or maybe it's not going to be called Born Again now, has a new showrunner and new directors, this according to The Hollywood Reporter. Of course, they kind of, you know, kind of canned everybody a week or two ago. But now we have Dario Scardapane, or Scardapan, I can't remember how I can't remember how to pronounce that. Uh, I mean, Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan is on the resume. This is uh, somebody who did The Punisher as well. Yes, the Netflix version of The Punisher. That's the new showrunner for Daredevil. So, and then you've got Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead that are going to be co-directing as well. And of course, and they just directed episodes of season two of Loki. So this is a creative team that really, to me. If you're looking at this and what they had and what they were talking about, the tone being, you know, being a little bit of a lighter tone and things like that and having kind of a different tenor to this. To me, this what what you're doing here creatively tells me there's a tonal shift in this show, especially if you hire somebody as your showrunner that worked on Jack Ryan and The Punisher. Yeah, I mean, there's some there's some comic relief. In, in Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan, there is. Most of that's because of John Krasinski and, 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 and Wendell Pierce. Wendell Pierce, yeah, I think that's his name. So, so that's part of it. All right, you have to keep that in mind that characters and the actors portraying them are very much a, a reason for that. But at the same time, and, and certainly the Dare, first Daredevil series had plenty of comic relief with Foggy, and, and you know even Matt could be funny at times. But... To me, when you hire a guy that, or when you hire someone that has worked on Daredevil, and, and excuse me, worked on Jack Ryan, and worked on The Punisher, you're telling me that, okay, we're, we've decided that we want to go a different direction with this thing. And maybe this is one of those things where they have decided that, the fans were maybe right. Maybe this is them listening to the fans and the backlash from She-Hulk. Maybe that had a little bit to do with it. But maybe they realized that fans don't really want necessarily a, a funny and lighthearted version of Daredevil. They want maybe not something as gritty as what we had from the first Netflix series, but maybe something at least a little bit close to that. And there's a way to kind of play both sides of this here a little bit, too. You can have a little bit of both. But you also can't take it too far. And I think that the MCU has always kind of struggled to find that mix. But if you look at something like Moon Knight, where they seem to find a little bit of something, found a little bit of something there to be able to be masters to both, right? You can actually have some humorous elements to it, but also have that edge in there as well. So you can kind of do both. And I think that that's what they're going to ultimately end up shooting for here, whether or not they're going to succeed. In doing so, no idea. Only time will tell. But 
I do think that this is a good step in the right direction because I think if they were going to go a similar route that they did to She-Hulk, that would not have worked at all. I think fans would have hated it. I, I don't know if we're still going to get the, the yellow Daredevil suit or not. I don't think the suit matters as much. I think that fans kind of want to see that yellow suit anyway a little bit. But at the same time, like I, I th- I'm glad that it seems like creatively they've shifted. Maybe they've saw, thought some things through and decided, okay, yeah, we're going to go a different route with this thing. And, you know, kind of see what happens. This one, I wasn't going to talk about this, but because it's not a sure thing, obviously. But I, I, this is one of my favorite games of all time, so I, I decided I was going to talk about it anyway. There's a, a leaker named Zippo, and I know you're thinking, okay, oh, here we go. We're going to talk about leaks and all this stuff. Now, look, Zippo's had some accurate Nintendo scoops before, okay? And comicbook.com even mentions that in their article that they do. But what this, what the hot rumor is, is that Nintendo is going to make do a remake of Super Mario Brothers three. Now, the original Super Mario Brothers will always be near and dear to my heart. I even liked Super Mario Brothers two. Don't at me for that either. It was fun. I actually played the Japanese version first because for some reason my video game store had it, and I rented it all the time. I don't know how they got it, but they did, and I rented it all the time. And then Super Mario Bros. 3 was the, okay, everybody hated Super Mario Bros. 2, let's write the ship. And not only did they write the ship, they created a game that sort of revolutionized Mario Bros. games going forward to me. With the worlds, with the power-ups, they really took things to the next level. And just added things on. where and you, It was almost like the whole, oh, I didn't even know that we needed this until we got it. Like the raccoon suit, which is still legendary. You got the Tanuki suit, that was Super Mario Bros. 3. I mean, there's just so many things that came out of Super Mario Bros. 3 that fans love so much. And it's kind of only natural to go, man, what would that game look like? with today's technology, with today's graphics and all of that stuff. And maybe we've kind of seen that already. And and would this be more of a a 3D, maybe an open world map, or is this still going to be a side-scroller? I I would still love to keep it as a side-scroller, but, you know, it's not up to me now, is it? If you're going to remake something, you make it what it is, but you also have to bring something new to the table. So there's a little bit of a danger there, right? When you're going with a classic game like this and you're you're going something you're going right at something that is near and dear to so many people's hearts that are my age, okay? And even younger too cuz my son who's 9 loves Super Mario Brothers 3. Loves playing it. Now he loves the new versions of Mario as well, but you know, as a dad, I felt it was my responsibility to, you know, keep things old school a little bit have him play some of the older versions. So he got to play Super Mario Brothers, Super Mario 2, Super Mario 3, Super Mario World. So I did all of that to make sure that he played the classics as well, and he loves them. But if you're going to do this, you're going to have to really be careful that you don't take things too far and make a brand new game. Now, I actually think that Super Mario Brothers Wonder, which I've yet to play, is looks phenomenal. It looks really, really cool, and it, you want to talk about taking things in a different direction. That game looks like it's really going to be something cool and like a cool and different, wacky version 
of the Mario that we already know and love. If you could take this game and tweak it, and we've seen some of this stuff with like Super Mario Brothers U for, for Switch and some other games, stuff like that, where they've taken elements that have clearly come from Super Mario Brothers 3 and characters as well and taken it to a different level. So how do you take Super Mario Brothers 3 to a different level with like with you know b- being more on the ships and things like that. Maybe you do something a little bit different with that. Maybe you change the levels up a little bit. I feel like Super Mario Brothers U was the closest thing so far to Super Mario Brothers 3 that we've had. So, I d- I'm not saying I already feel like we've gotten the remake, but they've got they got so close with that one that I don't know what we're gaining from a remake of Super Mario Brothers 3. But would I play it? Hell yeah, I'd play it. I would love to see what that would look like. But at the same time, again, is this something that we need? Well, Nintendo knows that every time they bring Mario out, they're going to print money. So, you know, are they going to add new, the ability to have new characters with this? I don't know. This is To me, this is a wait-and-see type situation. And if it gets announced, it gets announced. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And it's probably not something we'd see for at least another two-plus years anyway, unless they've already been working on it behind the scenes. But we'll have to see... What happens with this? Amazon Prime Video. And I know they hate it when you call it that, but it is it is Prime Video, and it is from Amazon. So there you go. The premiere date of the Fallout TV series has finally been revealed. It's going to be coming out on April the 12th of 2024, which, hey, that's going to coincide with Fallout Day. So that makes a lot of sense. And we get a little bit of a teaser, and you get, you, you get to see Pip-Boy and... You get to see some of the other stuff from Fallout games a little bit. And here, here's the deal. You kind of don't know what this is going to be yet, do you? You, you really don't. I mean, you, they, they, this, here's the synopsis, in case you don't know. Set in a future post-apocalyptic Los Angeles and world of Fallout, the series is an original story based on Fallout that will be part of the canon of the games. And that is from the official synopsis okay so this is something that is going to be canon in the games as well and yeah there's always a little bit of a danger when it comes to that now fallout wildly popular that is not up for debate but what we've seen with recent releases of fallout is fans getting a little bit more grumpy and saying you know what i don't know this is not something is the the fans haven't exactly been digging some of the newer updates on Fallout, and maybe they were rushed or something like that. But here's the deal: this one you don't have to worry about in that regard because you know you're not going to have something that's buggy or anything like that, right? You're going to have a, a completed show, so you don't have to, you, you don't have to worry about a game with a bunch of bugs. Now, what's the story going to be? We don't really get much of a clue on that, and where's this going to go, and how does it connect to the games? And when I hear that it's connected to the games, the only thing that worries me about that is that are we looking at something that's going to be like super fan servicey, right? That is one thing that worries me a lot is that will we see a lot of fan service in this because you're connecting it to the games? Are you going to feel like you're forced to do X, Y, and Z because you want to stay super true to the games because you have to now because it's canon, right? Or are you going to be able to do something that, you know, takes us beyond certain parts of the map, right? Takes us to a different part of the world, maybe. Takes us to a different part of the story that we didn't already know about 
but still takes place. And, and you can have, you don't have to do complete fan service, but you still can have like little winks and nods telling you, okay, this is how it's set in the game, right? You can do that and not go overboard. The problem here is that a lot of times we see these projects and others as well go overboard with stuff like this where it's too much, right? It's too much fan service. It's like, why on earth? Are we doing this? Why are you just throwing out fans over saying, give me a story? Now, we've also seen that done right in the past as well. Castlevania is a perfect example of that on Netflix. Castlevania, they could have had just a ton of fan service from the games, right? And people probably still would have been happy about that. They didn't do that at all. They told a wonderful, several, several wonderful stories as well because you could, talk, you could throw Nocturne in there as well, which has been fantastic recently. So what they did is they went a different direction and said, okay, we're going to tell this story. We're still going to give you some winks and nods to the games, but we're going to tell our own story. I really hope that the people behind this Fallout thing are going to be able to do that. I, I mean, I really, really have high hopes for this thing, because you know what? This is a great idea for a TV series. It really, really is. So if they can get this right, that it'll make a ton of sense. But this is also one where you could absolutely fall on their faces. So hopefully executive producers Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy, who of course were behind Westworld, so there's you know it feels like there's some there's some symmetry there as far as what you could do with the story. Hopefully they understand that. Hopefully they can get everything right. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hope you have a wonderful and safe Halloween, whether you're just handing out candy or you're going out with the kiddos. Hopefully you have a great one. Thanks to Amy Chu for joining me at Comic-Con. I thought Carmelo was a perfect story to talk about for Halloween. So if you can get your hands on it, read it. It is absolutely amazing, both visually and story-wise. I think you'd really, you'll really, really dig it. Make sure you're following me on social media at Down and Nerdy 757 on Twitter and Instagram at Down and Nerdy on Facebook. Nobody uses threads anymore, so who cares? We've also also at Down and Nerdy Pod on TikTok. I've got a lot of older videos on there. Got some new stuff coming here pretty soon. Everything, though, can be found at downandnerdypodcast.com. And make sure you're subscribing on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. You can listen on the website as well. ton of ways for you to get the show. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.